normally I'm not too nervous when I have the opportunity and privilege to preach, but um, I got nervous this morning when I looked at the schedule and saw Ed and Jack were going to be up here. So I begged Jack in the first service to, uh, you know, to to not take advantage and preach a sermon and not to get back at me for the times I took from his time. So he he promised to do that. But um, I want to start with talking about Louis XIV. He was a king in France uh, for an astounding 72 years. And in fact, his reign is the longest reign of any European monarch ever. During his reign, it was known as the Golden Age of France. He brought about many uh, incredible things for the nation of France. Very extravagant as well. He had the, the uh, uh, Palace of Versailles built at over $100 million, which was a lot of dough at the time. Uh, his, his kingdom was magnificent. Uh, his monarchy was grand. He knew it, and he liked to boast about it. In fact, he liked being known as the Sun King. And the reason for that was just as the planets revolve around the sun... He felt that France and its courts revolved around him. In fact, uh, he relished the title Louis the Great. Well, Louis the Great died of gangrene in 1715, and a bishop named Jean-Baptiste Massignon was appointed to deliver the eulogy at his funeral. The funeral was held at the uh, Grand Parisian Cathedral of Notre Dame, and uh, Louis had himself put in a very ornate casket. And part of the request he had for his funeral was that a single candle be lit and placed next to his casket. Well, as Bishop Massignon approached the coffin to give the eulogy, he paused and he blew out the candle. And then he stood over the coffin and proclaimed boldly, God alone is great. You see, our culture, we need to hear this same message. Like Louis XIV, our culture has exalted itself, seeing as the chief end of man being to glorify man and enjoy him forever. We've exalted self above God. This attitude was expressed very simply in a song back in 1986, a hit song which said, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. This focus on self-exaltation and self-love, it's not only pervasive in our secular culture, it has infiltrated the church and infiltrated it hard. In fact, Robert Schuller is one of the reasons for that. And in his book this, uh, called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, he said, The single most important question facing the world today is, what is this creature called the human being? The need for dignity, self-worth, self-respect, and self-esteem is the deepest of all human needs. Is that true? Is the most important question that plagues us, what is this creature called a human being? Or is it, who is God? Is the greatest need, is your greatest need to have self-esteem and self-respect? Just what does God have to say about that? How are we to view ourselves? It is an important question. So I want you to turn to Psalm 8, where we're going to look at God's answer to that. Because we can only answer this question of who we are in light of who God is and what is His significance. And Psalm 8 will learn that a proper self-esteem is found only in a healthy God-esteem. And as I read this psalm and studied it, I was reminded uh, several times of my own childhood growing up. Uh, I grew up near Yosemite in the Sierra Nevadas. And on many evenings and many occasions, I would go outside as a young boy and just lay on the ground and look up. There were no city lights. There was just a canopy of space, which is supposed to be up on the screen here. Canopy of space. <laughs> canopy, stars. Ah, there it is. Thank you. <laughs> That is what I would stare at and be in awe and wonder. Uh, just last summer, uh, we had the opportunity to go. Uh, the high school group went up to summer camp. We went up to Lake Almanor. And it was an amazing time there because it was uh, one of the uh, time periods where there were many meteors that were uh, hitting the atmosphere. And so we laid out there on the ground and looked up at the stars in the sky and we saw meteor after meteor coming across the sky. It was magnificent. It was amazing. Well, it was on just such a night some 3,000 years ago when David 
had fixed his gaze upon the sky. And here is what came upon his mind as he did so. A psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, the introduction to this psalm tells us that it is a song. It is a song that David wrote. And its theme is given at the very beginning and then repeated again at the end. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in fact, it is a song that is addressed to God. It's refrain that, that occurs again at the beginning and the end tells us this is what the focus is. And he begins the poem with two references to God. O Lord, our Lord. And that may seem like he's simply repeating the title Lord, but actually he's not. The first word for Lord that's shown here in all capital letters is a reference to Yahweh. It is God's personal name, the name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. If you remember that account, I'll read part of it in Exodus 3, 13. Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb of being or to be, Hayah. And it means I am. And Yahweh uses this to describe his personal name because he is saying that he is the eternally existent one. He always is and he always is there. He is the eternal faithful God who never changes. And in fact, Yahweh is used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. God wants us to know his name. He wants us to know him. In fact, Jesus himself said he was Yahweh. In John eight fifty eight, he said, uh, before Abraham was born, I am. He made a clear statement of his deity, his identity as Yahweh. And David begins this poem this way, and it's a personal song written to God. Oh, Yahweh. It's a personal song to be personal and addressed to our dear and precious Yahweh. The second term, Lord, there is the, the Hebrew word Adonai. And it is a title. It's a title of God's rulership, that he is master, that he is king, that he is governor. He is ruler over all. So David opens this song by focusing on God, saying, Oh, Yahweh, our master. And he then proclaims, How majestic is your name in all the earth. And the use of name here, it not only represents God, but it represents the revelation of himself. And I want you to see that. Turn with me to Exodus 33. It's important we understand all that is involved when he talks about the name. In fact, we sung it in a song just a minute ago, that God's name would be known over all the earth. Just what does that mean? Exodus 33. And if you remember, this is when, not long after the golden calf incident, and God had said, I don't think I can handle being with you, so I'm going to let you go. You go on ahead. And Moses said, no, 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 we're not, I'm not going forward if you don't come with us. And in that moment, Moses desired to see God's glory, to get a fuller picture of him. We'll pick up the account in verse 18 of Exodus 33. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, that is God, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. 
And then as God kept Moses behind the cleft of the rock as he passed by, let's pick it up down in chapter 34, verse 5. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as Moses called upon the name of Yahweh. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity. In verse 8, Moses went with haste upon hearing the name of God and his name being proclaimed in his character and goodness. He bowed low to the earth and worshiped. We see here the idea that the name of God carries more. It's, it's the idea of his reputation, of his fame, of his greatness, of his character, of who he is, of what he has done, what he has shown of himself. And just as Moses responded in awe to that, as God gave him a, a glimpse of who he is, so too David has, as he glimpses, gets a glimpse of God's glory in the universe here in Psalm 8. And he says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And majestic has the idea of, of magnificent, of, of wonderful, awesome. It's intimidating power is the idea behind it. It's immediately what comes to his mind when he gazes upon the mighty expanse of the universe. And all he can say is, oh, Yahweh, our master, how awesome how majestic is your name in all the earth? Saying, God, you are an inspiring, an awe-inspiring God. And I forgot to mention, if you're outlining, taking notes, um, the first point is in verses 1 and 2. David reveals an awe-inspiring God. And secondly, in verses 3 to 4, he's going to give us an apparent or an obvious question. And then in verses 5 through 9, he will reveal an astonishing answer. David first identifies the heavens as showing the majesty of God when he says in verse 1, who has displayed his splendor above the heavens. And splendor is another word for majesty. It's a synonym for majesty. It refers to honor, like what a king receives when he's being crowned. So what David's saying here is that God um, is crowning the universe with his glory. It's an honor to display God's glory, and the universe has been given that honor. We see a similar idea in Psalm 19.1 where it says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Habakkuk 3.3 says, His splendor covers the heavens. And what's amazing, you know, is we see pictures like this or have the privilege or opportunity at times to go out and gaze upon a sky filled with stars is that, you know what? What our eyes see is only a small, small, small glimpse into the glory of God. It's just a taste of his greatness. And as we continue to build more microscopes and we've put the Hubble telescope, microscopes, telescopes, we've put the Hubble telescope in the air. It's circling and orbiting the earth. It's giving fantastic and amazing images. But you know what? We still don't see the end of the universe, only that there's more of it. Billions and billions of stars, billions and billions of light years away, stretching into space. And we still don't see the end of it. And frankly, I don't think we ever will. And to think God's glory and his splendor is even beyond that. Solomon said after he built the temple in 1 Kings 8, he said, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. David then gives a second way that God's majesty is made evident that it's displayed. And it's with a surprising twist. The first way we saw God's majesty evident was in the power of creation. But this second way that he reveals in verse 2 is that not only is it seen in the heavens, it's also seen in the humble. The universe, right, it attracts a lot of attention. It is a magnificent display of God's greatness. Yet God's majesty is not just seen in the things that, that appear to be great. It's also in the, seen in the things that appear to be lowly. It's in those things that don't draw a lot of attention. He shows his greatness not only in the grandeur of heaven, but in the lowliness of little children. So in verse 2, David travels from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the lowly and humble on earth. Look at verse 2 with me. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your enemies to make the, your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now this idea, this phrase, that he gives here, this is the only time in the Old Testament that we see this. And what David is doing here, he's painting a picture of these uh, toddlers or, or nursing babies. And as they murmur or cry or, or 
give things off with their voice that even through that, God could thwart his enemies. God can use anything to bring down the mightiest of men or of angels. He shows his awesomeness by using the weakest of us to overcome the proud. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 reveals this. Paul says there, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You see, Paul says there, God chooses the foolish. He chooses the weak. He chooses the despised. And how often have we seen this in history? In fact, the very the author of this very psalm, was he not used to, to perform a mighty act as a young lad, right? He bursts upon the scene of scripture by taking down a, a nine foot ogre that no one else wanted to touch. And he does it with a small stone. And I love how Steve Lawson described that event. He said, everyone else said Goliath is too big to hit. But David said he's too big to miss. Everybody else said, look how much bigger the giant is than I am. But David said, look how much smaller the giant is than God is. God's majesty was also put on display when he brought down the mighty power Egypt. And he did that through a baby. Remember Moses placed inside the reeds to avoid Pharaoh's edict of death. And yet God, in the irony of ironies, allowed Pharaoh's daughter to have compassion on him to take him into her arms and to raise him. And it was through the man Moses that God delivered the Israelites. In the time of Judges, little-known Gideon was raised up to deliver Israel from the Midianites. We read in Judges six fourteen, Yahweh looked at Gideon and said, Go into in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And Midian said to him, uh, Gideon, excuse me, said to him, Oh, Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my house. But Yahweh said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. And then not long after that, Gideon and 300 men are used to rout the Midianite army, which was over 130,000 strong. Jesus himself, how did he arrive on this earth? He arrived as a humble baby, born not to a prince, but to paupers. Calvin said, The splendor of divine providence is so apparent that even infants can bring down to the ground the fury of the enemies of God. So the clear principle here that David is reflecting on is that the majesty of God is seen not only in the heavens, but it is also seen when he uses the humble to defeat his enemies. One pastor said, God delights in working through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. When you recognize your weakness and your emptiness, you're ready for God to use you. This is a testimony to God's greatness and not ours. So what has David taught us so far? What is it that he has shown us? I want to ask you a few questions to reflect upon. Do you take the time to gaze upon God's amazing creation and ponder the majesty of God himself? Or do you let it pass by to get on with your schedule? What do you think about when you gaze upon the heavens or the beauty of nature or the birth of a child? Doesn't God's ability to use humble things to achieve great things amaze you? Do you see your pursuit of humility as a way in which God will do great things through you? Does God himself strike awe and wonder in you as you ponder who he is? David continues his stargazing in verse 3, as, and he does so. A very important and a very apparent question comes to his mind. Look again at verse 3 and 4 with me. <clears throat> David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You see, the author's Apparent question, he first acknowledges the significance of the universe and of its creator in verse 3. David begins here with when or as I look upon your heavens. And this is where we see clearly that this psalm was birthed 
in the author's intense stargazing. And we know that he's looking at the night sky because as he talks about it, he mentions only the moon and the stars, but leaves out the most prominent source of light in our sky, which is the sun. That's because it's, it's evening time. That's why Spurgeon called this psalm the psalm of the astronomer. And David is filled with the immensity of God, again, as he looks at the canopy of space. And by the way, have you ever wondered or tried to count how many stars you can see? We could do that, I guess, now in a few minutes here. And, you know, scientists tell us that uh, the naked eye can see somewhere between three to 9,000 distinct stars, um, depending on the conditions and, and your eyesight and, and all of that. But it's an amazing thing to think about. And that's just a small, small taste. The heavens here are described in verse 3 as the work of God's fingers. Again, this is a unique way that, that is being described here. And, of course, we know God did not create the universe specifically with fingers. He doesn't have fingers. How was the universe created? He spoke it into existence, right? So is David contradicting Scripture here? Is he? You can talk sometimes as I preach here. It's good for you. Let's engage. Let's dialogue together. No, no, of course not. But he's using poetic language. This is a poem, remember. And he's specifically using this phrase in order to draw our attention to an important fact. And in fact, his use of the term fingers is unique. Normally, when speaking of God's creation, we see the idea of the work of his hands. Or even when people create things, it's talked about as the work of their hands. You don't see it described as the work of their fingers. But David is doing this in order to draw attention to an important point. He's trying to, you know, if you think about it, making something with your fingers, there is the aspect of molding and shaping and specific care and concern. But I think David is actually more emphasizing God's immensity and that he's created, God has created the whole universe. And how did he do it? Just with his fingers. God made the universe with his fingers. What can you make with yours? It's amazing. Amazing. The question David asks in verse 3 and 4 is, It not only acknowledges the significance of the universe and its creator, it also acknowledges the insignificance of man. In fact, verse 4 is the the crux of this poem. It is the direction that David is headed. It is what's really plagued his mind and filled it as he wonders and looks at the universe. And he says, the question that has plagued mankind for millennia, what is man? Who are we? Just on Friday, we went over to the newly renovated Griffith Observatory. And if you haven't been there, I would encourage you to go. It is, there's some, they've done a great job. There are many great displays of God's glory all over the building. They don't give him credit, but go and look. It's, it's a spectacular, uh, spectacular uh, way they've done that. We went to the, the observatory, the planetarium, and watched a show there. It's called The Center of the Universe. And guess what question, what the question of the hour was during that entire show? Repeated several times. Who are we? What are we doing here? What is man? Now, they got the answer wrong, but it does tell you that this question has has plagued us for centuries. It is something that that we all think about. And when David asks this question, he's not asking it now. Who are we in this world? Rather, the tone of the question is of what importance or significance is the human race? He's making a contrast here between the the awesomeness, the vastness, the greatness of God, and then saying, why would he even give us the time of day? And we can see this tone in the the two words that he uses for man here. Uh, They're two different words. Again, in your translations, you'll just see man. But what David does is the first term that he uses for man is enosh. And that emphasizes man's frailty. It emphasizes our weakness. In fact, we see an example of that in Psalm 103, 14 and 15, where it says, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, Enosh, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. The second term that David uses for man here in verse 4 is son of Adam. If you remember Adam, right? That's the first term used for man in Genesis 1. And uh, it has the idea of how did, how did God create Adam? Right from the ground, out of the dust. In fact, the Hebrew word for ground or dust is Adamah. So what David is doing here is he's focusing on the mortality of man. So taken together, these two words poetically express our frailty, our mortality, our weakness. 
In fact, I want you to turn to Psalm 90 for a moment. I want you to see there the same two words are used to express the same idea. It's in many other places, but Psalm 90 shows it as well. And by the way, I'd encourage you uh, on our website. Steve Lawson came here, preached on Psalm 90, did a, did a great job with that. I encourage you to listen to that sermon. So there in Psalm 90, we'll look at verse 3. This psalm was written by Moses, was, uh, the first psalm on the Psalter, written back during the time of the Exodus. And here Moses says, starting in verse 3, You turn man, Enosh, back into dust, and say, Return, O children of men, Ben-Adam, for a day, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass. He's speaking of people, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. So again, we see here in this psalm this idea of, of the mortality of man, of, of our weakness, of our frailty. So when David asks the question, what is man? He's really asking it with an implied answer. Well, in comparison to God, he's not much. And I'm sure you've probably experienced this same feeling. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? I think most of you, right? Now, uh, is your thought when you, you come up, I remember I was about 10, 9 or 10 years old. I went to the Grand Canyon and uh, my parents took me there. And uh, it was one of those long road trips, right? You remember those? Your folks take you on. And how long? How much further? I got to go to the bathroom. Are we going to eat ham sandwiches again? And my dad was a very patient man. Um, so we arrived at the Grand Canyon. And when we got there, I remember when we got out of the car, walking up to the edge, and there was railing over. I don't remember if we were on the north side or not, but I looked over into that canyon. you remember that moment when you did that, the first time you saw it? And what was the thought that came to your mind? Wow, I am so amazing. <laughs> right? Of course not. I remember a time up in Idaho when... Uh, we were in the outside, uh, it was during a lightning storm, and we were standing in the backyard, and then all of a sudden, bang, there was a huge bolt of lightning that struck a neighbor's yard. There was a metal swing set there, and it was less than 100 feet away. Oh, man, that was loud. And I'll tell you what, at that moment, I was not thinking how great I was. In fact, I said to my wife, honey, let's get back in the house. I mean, it was It was awesome. In fact, I think I was more afraid and startled in that moment than during the Northridge earthquake, which we were about a mile from the epicenter. It was an amazing glimpse into just a speck of God's power. When you find yourself sitting under a sky full of stars, as we've been talking about, you don't increase in awe of yourself, do you? No, the, the normal and spontaneous reaction of that when we are sitting in front, front of a picture such as this when we were outside is... We understand the vastness of the universe and we're aware of our own insignificance. I mean, consider for a moment, let's, let's make the, uh, let's say that the earth, let's compare the earth to our solar system. I brought this pebble here. Can any of you see this? That's the point. Okay. So get this pebble. Let's say this pebble represents the earth. All right. Now in comparison to the earth, if, if this were the size of the earth, the solar system would stretch about a mile wide. Let's think about uh, the solar system in regards to the Milky Way. Let's again, let's make this, uh, let's make this the, uh, the solar system. If that, that were the case, the Milky Way would stretch from here to Sacramento. And there are billions and billions of galaxies like the Milky Way. And here we are, just a speck on this planet Earth. And David was getting that feeling. He stood utterly amazed, and so should we, that God, this vast God, would consider and condescend toward us, such frail and mortal creatures. And that's what we see in verse 4. He uses two verbs there, to take thought of and to care for. The idea of to take thought of is to remember, to call to mind, to meditate upon. One author said, God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. The term care for is, is used quite often, and here it refers to God's special attention that he gives to somebody. It, it means here the, to seek out, to uh, look for someone to give care. One commentator mentioned regarding this word, it is as if God is calling to mind his human creatures, spark such a longing for them that he must seek them out and lavish care upon them. 
And we see this all over the scriptures. The words used when it talks about Sarah who was barren and God coming to her. And it says the Lord took note of Sarah. This word cared for. Or the Israelites when they were crying out for release from the bondage from Egypt. It says in Exodus 4.31 that the Lord was concerned about, cared for the sons of Israel. And it's important to note that these two verbs, to take thought of and to care for, that the Hebrew tense there is it's a continuous action. It's not a one-time event. It's not something that happened in the past. But God continually takes thought of His creation, of us. He continually cares for us. In the midst of David's declaration of the greatness and vastness of God, he is blown away that God would show such great care and concern for His creation. And you see, the message of this psalm is not that you are nothing. It's not that you are insignificant or useless. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God cares deeply for you. As we considered David's critical question, what is man? I want you to ask yourself, do you recognize just how small you are in this great universe of God's? Where do you find your value and significance? Is it in God? How amazed, how thankful are you? When you consider his care and concern for you. So far we have seen in this psalm. God's the awe-inspiring God in verses 1 and 2. And we've also seen the apparent or, or obvious question in verses 3 and 4 of what is man. David then, then gives in verses 5 to 9 an astonishing answer. And as I said before, this question, what is man, is, is the crux of this psalm. And it's a question that has plagued us for centuries. Secular philosophers, academicians, scientists, psychologists, false religions, they've all tried to answer it. They've all thrown their idea into the hat. But who do Darwin and Freud and Marx and Nietzsche and Eastern mysticism and Buddha and Joseph Smith and many others, who do they say man is? Are we an evolved animal? Are we byproducts of our environment? Are, Are we nothing and going to nothing? Are we gods? Or are we in the process of becoming gods? Are we all a part of God? See, that's what these people think. But what does the one true God say? Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Now, before explaining what he's focusing on here, I need to deal with with one term that's used at the very beginning. Rather than God, some of your Bibles may say angels or heavenly beings. The version I have, the NAS, has God there. You've made him a little lower than God. Well, the word used for God here is Elohim. It was a common word that was used for uh, pagan deities and gods in the ancient Near East. And it's also used and occurs more than 2,300 times for the one true God. In fact, the first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now, Elohim is also used in some instances to refer to people or to other heavenly beings. Human judges or rulers are called Elohim in Psalm 82.1 and Exodus 22.8. Abraham is called Elohim or mighty prince in Genesis 23, 6. And if you remember that account when Saul went to the witch of Endor and asked her to, to bring Samuel up from the grave. And when she did and she saw Samuel, she said, I see a divine being, an Elohim coming up out of the earth. It was quite a shock to her. The Greek translation, the Septuagint, also translates this term Elohim as angels. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews later accepts this as a translation in Hebrews 2.7, where he says you've made him a little, for a while, a little lower than the angels. And I think all of these give strong support that angels is the correct translation. But I think the context itself shows us this. I mean, what has David's focus been to this point? It's been on the vastness, the greatness of God, and the insignificance of man in relation to that. So it wouldn't make sense for then David to say, yet you make him just slightly lower than you. His point has been, we're we're vastly lower than God. And that's why he's so amazed that God would care. So take angels here as the correct translation. Now with that point aside, let's look at what David is pointing out here. He's saying that you and me are not like anything else in God's creation at all. In fact, we've been made just a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've been crowned with glory and majesty. 
He has taken this seemingly puny part of his creation. He has given mankind glory and honor and responsibility. And as he's listing these things out, talking about making him rule, talking about the sheep, the ox, and the beasts of the field, it's clear that David is referring back. He's echoing back to the creation. He's echoing back to when God first made us. Let's look back at Genesis 1 for a moment. Because there's something here that he's really focusing attention on that he doesn't say explicitly, but... But it's present in the text. I want you to see it. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. <clears throat> Again, this is what's on David's mind. He says, verse 26, Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then Moses writes a poem here. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And Moses wrote this poem because he wants us to pause and reflect on what God just said in verse 26. Let us make man in our image. Take a moment, reflect on that. We are unique to everything that God has made. In this entire vast creation, with all of its creativity, with all of its power, He made us in His image. We're not evolved from animals. We are not glorified apes or advanced primates or sophisticated gorillas. No, we are separate. We are unique. In fact, we're called a crowning achievement. Psalmate says we are crowned with glory and majesty. And, you know, he didn't make us vast like the ocean. He did not make us multicolored like the toucan. We're not able to fly like the eagle. We're not as strong as a gorilla or as powerful as an elephant. We don't have the voice of a lion. We're not as fast as a cheetah. We can't breathe underwater like the fish of the sea. But we are something that no other part of creation can claim. We reflect the image of God. Now, it doesn't mean we're exactly like him, but the idea is we well represent him. Among everything in this vast creation, God is most seen in you and me. That is astonishing. That's why David describes us as being crowned with glory and majesty, because we're in his image. He talks about that prolifically here in this psalm. Now, to be made in the image of God means that we have some of God's attributes resident within us. We can reason, right? We can exercise our will. We can think. We can be creative. We have language, morals, a conscience, a soul. Those things that set us apart from the animal kingdom. Calvin saw that the seed of the image of God was in the soul. Again, I want you to reflect on this. This is astonishing to consider. I mean, we hear this a lot, you know, we're made in the image of God. But really, think about that. And think about that in light of the vastness and greatness of God. We are not a cosmic experiment or a whimsical notion on God's part. We're not a part of a random mutation that has occurred. In fact, in a sense, God, when he made us, he put his own reputation and glory on the line because he placed us, made us in his image. But regrettably... Many have taken this passage in Psalm 8 where David talks about man and and how God has crowned him with glory and majesty. Many take this to try to exalt man, to try to exalt his status, to try to say that you should love yourself, that that you have a great self-worth because you're in God's image. They use this text to say, well, he talks about man mostly here. That is the focus. This psalm is really about you. It's about how great you are. It's about how you are exalted, how you are worthy. But is that really the case? Is this passage given in order to emphasize your value, to help you feel good about yourself, to build up your self-esteem, to exalt man? Look at verse 9. Let's see David's response. After reflecting on this, talking about what is man, reflecting on the fact we're made in his image, that God instilled in us his image in creation, what does he say next? Does he continue to go on at the amazement of man? No. He ends the psalm the way he began it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic your name is in all the earth. Rather than focus on our greatness, David takes us back to where our journey began. It's all about God. It is all about God. A right esteem, right self-esteem is only found in a healthy God esteem. And that's his point. 
You and I have value because God has value. It's just like the moon, right? The moon is not a light source. It reflects the light of the sun. So too we reflect the image of God. The worth of the image is depends on the worth of the pattern, not the image. It's like a painting, right? You hear the classic story, someone finding a painting in their attic, and it's fairly nice, but it's ordinary, dusty. You blow the dust off. You, you put it down, in, uh, down in, for a garage sale. You put it up for, say, 20 bucks, and then some art collector comes by and he says, that's a Monet. What just happened to the value of that painting? It's worth millions now. Get away. It's mine, right? You offered it for 20 bucks. No, it's mine now, right? Your value, your value is in God's image in you. Now, I want you to think about the main focus of this psalm. Who is it on? Is it on man or is it on God? God really is the subject of this entire psalm, right? David began the psalm addressing it to the Lord. Oh, Yahweh, our master. And then the refrain, which he uses at the beginning of the psalm and he ends the psalm with is how majestic is your name in all the earth. And look at the subject of each of the sentences given in this psalm. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You crown him. You make him to rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. Your name, your splendor, your heavens, your fingers, your hand. You get the point? It's all about the Lord. It's all about his majesty, his goodness, his splendor, his glory, what he has done in us and for us. Right? We don't have anything to boast of in ourselves, just like Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says Yahweh, let not a man, wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. So when we try to answer this question, what is man? You can only answer it correctly if you embrace the greatness and glory of God. As David asks and answers, what is man? Who is man? He doesn't say, wow, I'm in the image of God. I'm pretty special. Everybody love and honor me for I'm in God's image. Yet this is what so many in our culture and sadly in our churches say today. We've distorted the message of this psalm. We've made its focus the glory of humanity rather than the glory of God. We've made it all about me. In fact, this attitude is it's pervasive within the church. Let me give you another quote from the self-love evangelist, Dr. Schuler. The most serious sin, listen carefully, the most serious sin is the one that causes me to say I am unworthy. For once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. It gets better. Reformation theology failed to make clear that the core of sin is the lack of self-esteem. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be permanently lifted from sin or psychological self-abuse. To be lifted from that and from shame to self-esteem. That is what he says it means to be saved. I want you to think about that. And by the way, Dr. Schuler is considered one of the mainstream evangelical pastors by the secular world. And I could have quoted many, many others. This attitude of our self-value is pervasive. The self-focus that we see in the church today permeates the body of Christ. What are the implications here of what he's saying? Don't view yourself as an unworthy sinner. Jesus died for your self-esteem. But my Bible says God demonstrates his own love towards us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians two, one through three says you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But you know what? An even greater problem with this self-focus is not 
that it gets the answer wrong to what is man. The tragic part of it is that it gets the wrong answer to the more important question of who is Christ. Let me give you an example of this. Schuler, in describing Jesus Christ becoming a man, says this. Brace yourself. By the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God honored the human race. The incarnation was God's glorification of the human being. This is unbelievable. Was that? Did I read that right? The incarnation was God's glorification of the human being. This is the path that self-focus takes you down. If it's all about me, if it's all about me needing to be loved, me needing self-esteem, me needing to be honored, I need self-worth. This is where you land. You deprecate, you bring down the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence on this earth was to glorify me. That's what this says. Philippians 2 has a different answer. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, exalted himself even further to become one of us. No. (laughs) He did not regard equality with with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He gave away so that taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Believe me, it was a humbling act for God to become like us. What a slap in the face that his incarnation was all about me, to honor me. And Psalm 8 proclaims we are made in God's image. It is an amazing privilege. It is an amazing privilege. What an honor. But rather than saying, I'm in the image of God, so you must love me. No, the point is, we need to be saying, you are in the image of God, so I must love you. The Bible says you don't need love from others, you need to love others. Your calling is not to be loved, but to love, right? The two greatest commandments in the Bible are me loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself, right? Jesus said that we're to love your neighbor as yourself. We already love ourselves. Paul Noted that in Ephesians 5.29 when he said, No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now, I know there may be some of you saying, Well, I, you don't know my situation. I, I don't have any self-confidence. I, I do feel worthless. I feel overwhelmed all the time with guilt, a, a low view of myself. If that is where you're at, let me give you a few things. So here's what you need to do, Okay. The first thing is, make sure that you do rightly understand the gospel. That you are an unworthy sinner and you do deserve the punishment of hell rather than God's love. We're all there. We all deserve that. We are all unworthy. But you know what? Fall at the foot of the cross because God eagerly seeks that you would come and and seek his forgiveness. When we knock at the door asking God to let us in, does he thrust open the door, grab our throat and throw us on the ground and stomp on us? No, he opens the door like this and comes out to us and hugs us, cherishes us. The prodigal son, the parable teaches us that. God stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to lift that burden of guilt off of you. That burden of guilt is there because of sin. And Christ says, I'll take that from you. You don't need to carry that anymore. So if you're suffering from a low self-worth or you just feel your heart on yourself, think first about that, that, that Christ died for you to lift that burden. Make sure you understand God's good news. Secondly, focus on the greatness of God. That's what the psalmist does here. David talks about how great and awesome and majestic God is. Think about his goodness, how he cares for you. And thirdly, focus your attention on loving others sacrificially. You see, focusing on God and others takes the attention off yourself. God made us not to focus on ourselves. You realize that? God made you so your focus would be on him and on others. That's when we're fully satisfied. That's when self-esteem becomes a non-issue, when your focus becomes God and others. Now, don't interpret what I'm saying here. Misinterpret. (laughs) Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. The alternate to self-love is not self-hate. 
Okay, I'm not saying to hate yourself. The alternative to self-love is to love God and others. The alternative to self-esteem is not to belittle yourself, but it is to understand and seek to better understand what it means to be made in the image of God. The alternative to self-fulfillment is not a life without meaning or purpose. But as one author said, it's God's invitation to be so completely involved with his will and his purposes that fulfillment comes through relationship rather than through self. You realize that God has built us, created us in such a way that when we seek to love him and to love others, that's when you find satisfaction. Seeking to love yourself will not satisfy you. It will not. This message, the message of Psalm 8, is like Bishop Massignon. It stands over our culture and it blows out the candle of self-love and self-worth. And it sits there to psalm to proclaim that God alone is great, that God alone is majestic, that God alone is God. Amen? A right self-esteem is only found in a healthy God esteem. I'm out of time, but there was one problem in this text I did want to take you to, and that was in verses 6 through 8. It talks about God putting all things in subject under our feet. Well, If you look around you, there's another God in this world who's considered the ruler of this world. Something happened. Sin blew it. Our responsibility to rule, Satan now has that. But Hebrews 2 talks about the Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes and he fulfills the role that God originally intended for man. He is coming back to rule. He has all things put under his feet. And he is the master. He is the Savior. He is the one in whom God fulfilled this psalm. Jesus Christ, and he's coming one day to save his friends and judge his enemies. And thus the New Testament really adds another line to this psalm. And I want you, we're going to close with this. Listen, when I consider the beauty, majesty, and power of our God, Jesus Christ, what is man that you would die for him? And the son of man that you would adopt him as your child. Oh, Jesus, our master, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do humbly fall at your feet. And we thank you that you humbled yourself to save us. We thank you that you have shown us your greatness and your majesty, not only in the vastness of the universe, but in the humility of your incarnation and becoming a man. Lord, I ask that you would purge the church of this insidious doctrine of self-love and self-worth. Take it out. Honor yourself. Glorify your name as you deserve. Make us, Lord, those who do not pursue love of self, Lord, but love of you and love of others. And we know that in that, we will have full satisfaction and joy. Lord, I ask any, if any are struggling here, God, with just a guilt and shame and being down on themselves, Lord, that you would use this psalm to give them hope and encouragement that that joy can be found in you as they turn to you and, and serve you and others. In your precious name we pray. Amen.